It's a Wonderful Life debuted in 1946 and was a box office failure. However, its fortunes changed when a clerical heir put it in the public domain in 1974. This made it very cheap to broadcast on television stations and lots of local affiliates put it on during the Christmas season as sort of scene filler. And just through um, slowly engendering familiarity, people eventually came around to the film and it became a classic. This is the most infamous example of this happening, but it's far from the last. Uh, TV Tropes refers to this as Vindicated by Cable. Lots of other films uh, were subject to this. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, arguably Citizen Kane. However, um, 80s cheese benefited from this from a great deal. Uh, the Last Dragon, Beastmaster, Princess Bride, Flash Gordon, to a lesser extent, 90s films like Hocus Pocus, Office Space, Shawshank Redemption. All of that came up. And for today's episode, we're going to be talking about the um, black comedy based on the board game Clue. We're going to um, deconstruct why this movie failed, why it suddenly became big again, and uh, what's lurking underneath its surface. My name is Ryan. It's a real deep dive. Joining me for this episode is my good friend Mackenzie Barton. Say hello, Mackenzie. Hello, Pam. Just about everyone in my social circle likes Clue at least a little bit, but I think you like it the most. Like, when the idea of me doing a podcast came up, you're like, oh, drag me in for the Clue one, and I held you to that. Definitely. Um, I can't remember the first time I saw this movie. I was probably, like, less than eight. We had a, we recorded a lot of movies off TV when we were kids, and this was one of the recorded VHSs that I watched the most, to the point where I probably watched this movie every day for a number of years. Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely one of those films where like you can just put it on in the background and not think about it too much it's a comfort movie it doesn't ask too much of you if you're familiar with it already and it's very rewatchable i saw it on cable too when i was in high school it was on practically every night on comedy central and i taped it off tv too and sort of became a staple that way i'd imagine that's that's the case for a whole lot of people I was really excited when our uncle gave us a, uh, an actual version of it on VHS. Yeah, I was excited when I got a DVD copy and, like, the first five minutes were on it because they weren't on mine. Well, you don't have to fast forward through the commercials anymore. My family were kind of sticklers about that. We would always, like, pause it as it, as it broke for commercials. So, yeah, I mean, it, there were still breaks because you'd have, like, three seconds of a Budweiser thing and then, and then you know, back to Clue. Yeah, you, you, you kids, you don't know how good you have it. Okay, uh, before we go any further, just gonna do a quick rundown of the plot. It is a whodunit in the very uh, Dr. Fell, Agatha Christie mold, especially certain elements of it. It takes place in a secluded New England mansion in 1954. I believe it's actually in Connecticut. Well, they uh, they filmed the thing on sound stages, but... Um, yeah, well, I mean, based in Connecticut. I don't know if I ever say that, but I'm pretty sure it's supposedly in Connecticut. Six strangers meet there, and each guest is given a pseudonym by Wadsworth the butler, played by Tim Curry. They're also uh, handed some uh, champagne by a sexy French maid named Yvette, who is played by Colleen Camp. Yvette's cleavage is one of the running gags in the film. There's also one about Wadsworth stepping in some dog shit, because this is a classy movie. The guests include Leslie Ann Warren, playing Miss Scarlet, Martin Mull's Colonel Mustard, Madeline Kahn as Mrs. White, Christopher Lloyd as Professor Plum, and uh, Eileen Brennan as Mrs. Peacock, and finally Michael McKean as Mr. Uh, Mr. Green. As they meet for dinner, it is made clear that each guest is being blackmailed, and that is the reason that they are called there. 
Uh, the seventh guest, uh, Mr. Body, played by Lee Bing, is the blackmailer. Wadsworth then confesses that he arranged the dinner party in order to expose Body. Body counters this uh, by giving each guest a weapon and then uh, threatens to expose everybody if one of them fails to kill Wadsworth when the lights go out. However, Body instead is the one who is slain. Wadsworth then tearfully uh, reveals that his wife was also being blackmailed by Body. She was apparently friends with some socialists in her younger years, and after failing to turn them over to Joseph McCarthy's uh, House of Un-American Activities, he blackmailed her until she committed suicide. This spurred Wadsworth into trying to arrange this sort of thing in order to uh, put him behind bars. Soon after that, the cook is found dead with a knife in her back. Body's corpse vanishes, and then is quickly found in the bathroom with new injuries. At that point, all the guests decide that they should lock the, uh, the weapons away in a cupboard. They're interrupted by a a stranded motorist who knocks on the door who is then subsequently lo locked in the lounge after he's asked to use the phone in there. Then uh, Colonel Mustard suggests that everybody breaks off into pairs in order to do a search in the house uh, and make sure there's nobody else there. Uh, during this sequence, an unseen figure burns the blackmail evidence, unlocks the cupboard, and then kills the motorist. At that point, a police officer shows up. He is investigating one of the stranded cars that the motorist left behind, and he also asked to use the phone. Uh, he's locked in, but he manages to get his way out after receiving a call from J. Edgar Hoover for some reason. Shortly after that, uh, the lights go out, and then Yvette, the cop, and a uh, singing telegram lady are all killed. Once the power is restored, Wadsworth reveals that he knows who the killer is. Uh, this sets up an elaborate uh, chase sequence where Wadsworth just wands around and reenacts the whole movie up to that point. Lots of comedic physical acting from Tim Curry in this bit. It's one of the most well-remembered sequences, and it leads up to three different endings. Alright, the first one involves Yvette working under orders from Miss Scarlet performing the murders. Scarlet tries to escape, but Wadsworth turns out to be an undercover FBI agent and snags her. The second ending involves Mrs. Peacock being the killer. It's more or less the same type of deal. Uh, Wadsworth is also the undercover FBI agent. The third ending is the, the most Agatha Christie one, where everybody did it. Uh, Professor Clum killed Mr. Body. Uh, Mrs. Peacock killed the cook, uh, who was a former employee and therefore responsible for informing Body about her doings. Colonel Mustard killed the motorist, who was his driver during World War II, and therefore uh, clearly the informant. Uh, Mrs. White killed the Yvette because she was jealous of Yvette sleeping with her husband. Garla killed the cop who was somebody she was paying off. And then Wadsworth reveals that he's the one who killed the singing telegram lady because he is Mr. Body and that the person that Plum killed was actually the butler. See, this whole thing was an elaborate ruse in order to um, just dispose of all of the various loose ends and accomplices that Wadsworth, Mr. Body had accumulated in uh, gathering his evidence and building his uh, illicit fortune. Now, he suggests they stack all the bodies in the cellar and leave one by one so that he can just go back to being a uh, shady backdoor blackmailer. At this point, Mr. Green pulls out the revolver and just blows Wadsworth away. He is the undercover uh, FBI agent in this scenario. And that's the third ending. Which has always been my favorite. I think it's pretty much everyone. Well, not, probably not everybody's favorite. Almost everyone gets to do something. When it first came out, Clue got mixed reviews, and it was a box office failure. The three endings were a gimmick. Each theater was given a different ending. So there was, in the newspaper, there was letters A, B, and C. Each one corresponded to a different letter. Problem is, is that they didn't actually tell the critics what each uh, letter coordinated to. And so, like, at, at the time, the ending that was probably the best one, which is the one where um, Mrs. White does 
does the the flames on the side of her face. It's only in one of the endings, which I believe it's the I think it's it doesn't. Matter. It's the third it's ending. The third ending. So that's probably like the one that's the best one. But if you didn't know, then you would have to go see the movie three times, and a lot of people didn't want to go see the movie three times. That's a lot of movie. Yeah, on uh, on home video and television broadcast, the three endings are stitched together with inner titles being like, "Oh, this might have been the ending, but how about this one?" And yeah, the inner titles imply that the third ending is the is the real one. Laughing, I have it on DVD where you can choose to have it randomly choose one of the endings. I never watch it that way. I always like I should do it one time. I never do. There was also a fourth ending that was shot and never included in the film. This one involves Wadsworth killing everybody. See, he was a failure as a husband because his wife was uh, committed suicide. He wasn't a very good butler, I'm assuming. So he wanted to make himself more of a man by pulling off the perfect crime. Uh, so he poisoned everyone's champagne and he steals away into the night after everyone's dead except him. But then he's subsequently grabbed by the authorities. I've never seen this ending. It's never, I don't think it's on any of the DVDs. Might be on the Blu-ray. I've never seen it. But apparently it was filmed and the director just got rid of it because he didn't like how it turned out. Before we go any further, I uh, want to talk about the cast because the main reason this film is so rewatchable and why it's fun to watch to begin with is just it's just the ensemble cast. Yeah, it has a lot of great character actors. I mean, nobody in this is a superstar, but they they all do their thing and they all do it well. And there are a lot of that guys in it, people you'd recognize even if you um, don't know their names. I know Leslie Ann Warren mostly through this, but when I was growing up, she uh, was Cinderella in the TV Rogers and Hammerstein version. My mother watched that over and over again, so her face is pretty familiar to me. But, you know, it wasn't like, oh, it's Cinderella. I had to look it up. And, uh, yeah, Madeline Kahn's... If there's one thing that people remember about this more than anything, it's the flames on the side of the face monologue, which she improvised, which I believe readily. Yeah, it's just that she actually did it four times, and they, they couldn't stop laughing while she was doing it. Like, everyone was like, what is she doing? <laughs> Yeah, the only real newbie there was Martin Mull. I mean, to people our age or younger, Mull is just a familiar character actor. He's in a whole bunch of sitcoms. I I, I probably first saw him as the principal in Sabrina the Teenage Witch. But at, at that time, in the mid-80s, he was mostly known as a stand-up comedian. Clue doesn't have a director's commentary or anything like that, so most of the info I picked up from it was from an oral history article that I looked up. And yeah, they talked to everyone who was involved in the film who wanted to speak to them, and Mull felt really intimidated throughout the whole thing because everyone there was like seasoned actors with tons of credits on stage and screen and he was just some guy who told jokes with a guitar in front of an audience I thought, well, Lee Ving was the, I read that he's the, was the front man for a band. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. And he'd like had a recent hit, and that's one of the reasons Paramount wanted him. It's interesting, he's, um, to get back to the Agatha Christie, he's, Mr. Body is very much like the dead guy in Murder on the Orient Express, like he's rich, but kind of thuggish. Like, they don't tell you that he's a mafioso, but uh, it's sort of implied in like his look and his body language and how he's dressed. Getting more into production details, uh, the producer in this film was Deborah Hill, which uh, if you're a horror buff, that name is familiar. She's best known for um, working on a bunch of John Carpenter films, co-wrote and produced Halloween, and then subsequently uh, Halloween 2, Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., and The Fog. The plot concept was come up with by uh, John Landis, who was kind of a Hollywood it boy at the time. He had, you know, done Animal House and the Blues Brothers, and I don't think he had uh, ruined his career by letting someone die on the set of the Twilight Zone movie yet. Uh, they do talk about it in this article at some point where it's like I can't remember if it was after before the movie so he's like getting over that issue Oh, yeah, it might have been. Died. 
Um, and then the writer, Lynn, or was he the director? He wrote and directed it. Yeah. Yes. Landis had approached Tom Stoppard, Stephen Sondheim, and Anthony Perkins somehow to um, flesh out the screenplay, but none of them were, were willing to do it. So uh, uh, Lynn was tapped uh, to, to put it together. And I, I wouldn't call it like a, a highbrow or a lowbrow script. It's it's very middlebrow. Yeah. Like I said, there's a running gag about Tim Curry scraping dog shit off his shoe and everyone thinking it might be on theirs instead. Yeah, well, I know there's um, they have, the reason they have run through so many writers is at the beginning they said they wanted the multiple endings and a lot of them were struggling to figure out how to finish the concept. Like they had the idea for the murders down, but then being able to finish it off in multiple ways apparently was a stumbling block for multiple of the writers. That's something you said you wanted uh, right when we were about to watch it again, is that you always wanted to watch this film and take notes to see if all three of the endings are plausible. Yeah, and they actually... Um, Everything they say happens, happens. Like, uh, what is it? Peacock and Professor Plum are missing in the kitchen. Like, like they show up later, but they're missing in the scene at the billiard room doorway. Uh, that isn't there. So, like, all the things that had to take like take place in order for the end outcomes to be plausible or the more major of them happen. I was like, good thing I was paying attention this time. Because you don't think to pay attention, even though you've watched this movie like 10,000 times. Yeah, I know with um, a lot of people with whodunits, they, they want to figure it out. I, I almost never feel that way. I just kind of like sit back and let it flow over me. I really should be a more act active participant whenever I watch or read one of these things, but I, I, I never am. I like to enjoy the ride. Yeah. I never really liked the Agatha Christie books. Like, her curl, her, that's her curl because he just shows up at the end and solves the murder. I was like, you weren't even there for the entire thing. Uh, I'm a Marple partisan yeah. myself, but I mean, she's sitting in the parlor and having people tell her stories and then she figures it out based on what she said. That's that's even worse. Yeah. Interesting casting things I came across. Apparently, Carrie Fisher was uh, originally uh, contracted to play Miss Scarlet. I'm guessing she would have crushed it, but um, this was at the point where she was battling substance abuse for one of many instances and had to go to rehab. Interestingly enough, they ran through a bunch of people for Wadsworth before they settled on Tim Curry, which is weird because this is considered one of his most iconic roles, at least in retrospect. I know, apparently Rowan Atkinson was up for it, but he didn't have enough screen cred yet. If you're a weird British comedy nerd, you you know Mr. Bean and, you know, Black Adder and stuff, but you know, back in the mid-80s, maybe not so much. You know, the film itself was uh, mostly shot on sound stages. However, they filled it out by uh, renting a lot of artifacts from uh, museums and collections from the uh, 18th and 19th century, uh, including some stuff from uh, that Teddy Roosevelt used to own. And I think that contributes a lot to the film because it's a locked room mystery, but at the same time, Clue as a movie is very interesting to look at. There's a lot of details, both in like in the wardrobe and in the scenery, and you know the camera moves things around, and it's never a boring film, even though 90% of it is just a bunch of people yelling silly nonsense at each other. Sort of like playing a board game. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but no, I've always loved the the wardrobe choices. I actually just read in this article that Lizzie Ann Warren couldn't sit down because they made her wear period correct underwear. So she was wearing a corset. They all really loved the room with the billiard table in it. In fact, they were excited because that's what they did in between takes was play billiards in the billiard room. Yeah, there's just a lot of 
fun stuff in the movie. Like even just in the backgrounds. Um, like I noticed this time we were watching it, the what is it? The the cook is I forget if she's Chinese or Korean, but there's behind her there's like in, like on the window there's definitely some Asian artifacts like she would have in her in her kitchen because it's her kitchen. Um, uh, in in the observatory there's wicker rattan furniture which was all the rage in the late 19th uh, century to about the 1920s. Yeah, you know, lots of lots of little things like that. I've always wanted those dang couches that are in the study. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's something I stumbled across in, or- in, in in the oral history, which I'm assuming that might be the thing you read, because Mull pointed out that, like, everybody was thrilled that there was a pool table there, because, you know, um, shooting a film is, like, 12 to 15 hour days, and it's largely people just moving equipment around in order to set up the next shot, so there's a lot of dead time, and hey, there's a pool table there, except, you know, poor Mrs. Peacock couldn't participate because she couldn't bend over. Oh. Miss Scarlet. Oh, Scarlet. <laughs> really? Because Peacock's yeah, costume looks a lot more restrictive than hers. Miss but... Scar- Scarlet is definitely wearing a corset in the movie because it's very skin tight and she doesn't have straps on. Oh, and yeah. Um, Peacock and... Well, Mrs. White doesn't have straps either, but for some reason it doesn't really look like she's wearing a corset. See, this is why I don't do these things alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah. So and Mrs. Keith Peacock's is, is like a full sleeved outfit. So she's probably not. I mean, they could all be wearing the correct underwear, but it really only looks like Miss Scarlet is wearing a full corset, which sort of makes sense since she's a madam. Going over the plot recap, I didn't actually bother to mention what they're all being blackmailed for. Okay, so Miss um, Scarlet is a madam, so she has a hotel and a phone service that puts men in the company of a young girl for a short time. Um, Professor Plum was a psychiatrist who got caught sleeping with one of his lady patients. Colonel Mustard sold essential air fort part, like air from God, airplane parts during the war. He was a war profiteer. Mr. Green is he works for the government, but he's gay, which is a big no-no in McCarthy area. Except in the third ending where he's just an undercover plant. Yeah. He uh, go home, sleep with his wife. No. Um, and then who, who's left? Mrs. Peacock is, hey, she's the wife of the senator, but she's been taking bribes. And who's left? Uh, oh, Mrs. Mrs. White, White, who killed her husband. Yeah, Mrs. White is a black widow. She's had multiple husbands. Yeah, another running gag is just, yeah, everybody crossing their legs because not only did she cut her uh, last husband's head off, she also emasculated him. Yeah, so, and then Mr. Body, technically, well, I mean, Wadsworth, if in the ones where he's not Mr. Body, Wadsworth's wife was a socialist and wouldn't and wouldn't name names, which I will say up until, like, a certain point, I thought was really confused about her being a social butterfly, making her a target for blackmail, but, you know. <sighs> yeah, I think we both watched this film we were probably a little too young for it. This does dovetail into the section where I want to talk about themes, which 1954 period piece, uh, the Red Scare is an undercurrent in the film. And uh, just... Um, also a joke. <laughs> yeah, I mean, during a lot of films that, that were made in the 50s that just sort of treated communism as a euphemism for paranoia, this one is also an extremely paranoid film that just throws communism in there. Uh, this being the Reagan years and um, more nuclear paranoia, I think that had a factor in the film's atmosphere. And yeah, the one of the film's insufferable puns is communism being a red herring. Eh? Eh, you get it? Uh. Yeah, the whole thing about it being a dark comedy, spoofing uh, murder mysteries, taking place in a locked room, uh, based on a board game, which does just the broadest possible stereotype of this uh, of this subgenre. I do think it sort of plays into uh, the scenery, which not only being interesting to look at, has that sort of decrepit New England opulence that I grew up around. 
I think that was a factor in the film's thematic undercurrents as well, because, you know, during the Gilded Age, all of the uh, antiques in that film were, you know, fashionable in upper echelon uh, homes. But once the, the Depression hit, a lot of those buildings fell into ruin. And shortly after that, in the 40s and 50s, you know, those Gilded Age homes just sort of became the setting for not only a lot of horror movies, but a lot of murder mysteries. So just the idea of that musty, mummified, upscale stuff that was fashionable a hundred years ago just sort of became a, a visual shorthand for it. Yeah. The film just being about a bunch of like rich, shady, corrupted, untrustworthy people stabbing each other in the back kind of plays into that, I think. Yeah, and of course the movie starts out with a massive thunderstorm to add to it. Oh, yeah, because you need to check off all the boxes. Another aspect of this film, I think, uh, plays into it, not only with the New England setting, but also just uh, in general is just puritanical sex shaming. You know, Miss Scarlet being a madam, lots of jokes about Yvette's cleavage. Uh, Mrs. White emasculating her husband gets brought up a lot. And then just everyone sort of, not like they're, they don't really haze Mr. Green, but there's definitely like some, oh, I'm trying to think of a good word for it. It's like, th there's jokes around Mr. Green being gay as well, which is not like all the men avoid him after they find out. Uh, Professor Plum pointedly gets up out of the love seat that yeah, both he and Green were sitting in. One of the other gags was like, in the third ending, Mr. Green is like, I'm a plant. And it's like, I thought you were referred to as a fruit. Yeah. Just a performance by Michael McKean as Mr. Green. I think it's one of the most underrated aspects of the film. I mean, people are always talking about Madeline Kahn's flames in the side of my face and you know tim curry being tim curry all over the place but um McKe mckean does a really good job like he's sort of the straight man for a lot of the like the, a lot of the practical jokes like the practical com comic humor um like him slapping mrs peacock is like one of my favorites him insisting that he's uh that he didn't do it and just the just the wispy kind of fey persona he uh he he just sort of embodies throughout the movie he, everyone in the film does a lot of physical acting but um and, and a lot of them are more pronounced about it, Curry especially, but uh, yeah, m m Mr. Green, just the, just the way he gesticulates, it's, it, it helps a lot. A, a lot of the things in the film that make you laugh, it isn't about the dialogue, which often is very, very cheeseball and predictable, it's just the way that the people deliver it, because they're all seasoned pros and they can thin straw on the gold. Yeah, this movie is, it's about murder, but it's also mostly about comedic banter. Like, the, I'm pretty sure a lot of the actors, like, just decided to even do this movie because they read the script and it was just funny like there's a lot of one-liners in this that are gold i mean i think if nothing else clue demonstrates that you can turn anything into a movie and make it work because i mean we have a lot of stuff where like they decided to make a movie about emojis Another board game movie is fucking Battleship, where uh, Liam Neeson fights aliens, and they none of them work. But and I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> of course you do. We, we it, all know I love bad movies. This one actually, like for what it does, it, it gets all of the concepts of Clue, and it really does work. Yeah, all the props are there, all the secret passageways, all the rooms. They do give you the board game experience, if that's what you're here for. Yeah, and I think this was probably one of the first movies that did this. Yeah. You have to look into it, but it's like, I don't think there's that many before this that are based on this kind of property. Like it, something that doesn't really lend itself because it has no plot. <laughs> Clue has an easier time with it because, like, it's it's clearly riffing on you know the locked room mystery, but still, it it is a flimsy thing to flesh out into like uh, ninety minutes or so. And you know, when one of those other things fails, like the emoji movie, people are like, "Well, what were you expecting?" 
And no, you could you can make anything into a movie if you actually, you know, give a crap. Like Clue mostly works and eventually people notice that it mostly works, which uh gives me a segue into its gradually growing cult reputation. Well, like I said, it was constantly a Comedy Central when, uh, when, when I was in high school, and eventually familiarity does breed a, a certain form of just comfort with it. Perennial favorite for home, home from school, sick days. Um, and I think even even like the actors, they weren't really well known for it. And then it just started like popping up at like places they were saying people would be like, oh, this is my favorite movie of yours. And they're like, what? You've seen that movie? Because all of these people have an, have IMDb pages that are like miles long at this point. And I'm sure this is just another gig for them. And when it underperformed at the box office, they figured, well, on to the next thing. But then it came back. And that was something that I kept picking up in the, in the oral history. Like Mull was very pleasantly surprised that people remember this film fondly and it got to the point where people were referencing it again uh Mull, lloyd and warren are all uh suspects on a random episode of psych i found out and then uh warren plays uh martin Mull's love interest on some episode of a recent sitcom that Mull is starring in and uh, apparently they're all a lot of, like wink wink nudge nudge these two were in clue together hey notice this <laughs> Since everything gets remade over and over again, uh, there is a Clue reboot that is currently in development now. Yeah, I read at the end of that about that. I hadn't read that much about it. There was also, like, this is a Clue's currently on Amazon Prime if you're interested. Um, but there's, like, another movie called Clue that I was like, when did this come out? And why does it have this many stars? But I'm not sure it's actually based on the movie or if it's just some other random murder mystery. As our viewing was ended, they were like, hey, if you like this, you'll probably like Murder by Death, which is, you know, another locked room mystery spoof that came out a couple of years before this one did. Uh, one thing that I, I noticed in the uh, oral history was I'm sure everyone who's listening to this is aware that the Rocky Horror Picture Show um, is very frequently uh, screened in theaters with a shadow cast, pantomiming the film in front of people. There are troops that do it as a sort of a double feature with some other cult movie. Uh, Little Shop of Horrors is very popular for that. But uh, one troop does Clue because, you know, the Tim Curry thing. And apparently they um they, they pair off pretty well together. Yeah, and I, I just saw, like, shadow cast people doing, like, the flames on the side of my face thing. Because, I mean, if, if you're in a Rocky Horror shadow cast and you're also doing Clue, you'd fight tooth and nail to do that bit because you just get, just, you can just ham it up. Uh, so, and then there's also, like, people who've done, pl like, play versions of it as well. Yeah, that was also talked about at the end. I once saw on YouTube uh, a version of the 1966 Batman movie that was performed exclusively by toddlers. I think Clue would be fun to watch in that in that idiom. Oh man! All right, uh, one one last thing I wanted to talk about before we wrapped up is that a couple of months ago, Knives Out came out, performed very well at the box office, and even got an Oscar nomination. And uh, a lot of people compare it to this Clue movie, sometimes unfavorably, because it kind of has a similar vibe. It did. And I did see Knives Out, not just because of the comparison to Clue, but it sort of has a different vibe. Like, it seemed more like an Agatha Christie knockoff than it did to, as Clue. I think it's because Clue has so much, so much based on the humor. And Knives Out, like, tried to do humor things, but it, it didn't quite hit the same note. Like, I don't think I'd want to watch Knives Out on repeat. <laughs> <laughs> like, I could, we just watch Clue. I'm totally down to watch it again. <laughs> like, right now. I, I can't say that for sure. I, I do think Clue has a lot of Christie vibes to it. Uh, and that being said, um, when we were exposed to Clue for the first time, we were very young. I was like maybe 14 or 15. 
I mean, we're in our 30s now. We're not approaching movies the same way anymore. Blue has had 15 years to dig itself into our psyche. Now it's just a comfy blanket we can wrap ourselves around. Knives Out is never going to be that type of uh, film for us. No. It is, I, I think it's entirely possible that a whole bunch of Zoomers will just glom onto Knives Out the way that we did on The Clue. But it's, it's possible. There's something about, I mean, it was, it had, it had its moment. And I'd probably have to watch it more than one time to make a decision. Because at this point, I saw it like a couple months ago. And it wasn't, I mean, it was a good movie. It went, play, I didn't think it was going to go places it went. I was like, oh, twist. Yeah, I do think that Clue kind of lays the trail for Knives Out in a way that, you know, we're all familiar with the murder mystery spoof movie because we all saw Clue a whole bunch of times and you're like, oh, this is doing that. Let's go see that, except this time it's going to make money. Yeah, well, I think it also it um, doesn't lend itself. So the reason that one of the reasons this movie was so popular to play on cable is that there's no nudity, there's no blood, like there's no like excessive blood, there, and there's a lot of stupid comedy banter. Whereas like Knives Out, there's there's blood. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, I think the main like, reason Clue caught on on cable is because it was a box office dud, so therefore broadcast rights were very cheap. Yeah, I and mean, that's that's where you get to like every movie that eventually became a cult hit on cable. The reason the Christmas Story became 24-hour marathon materials because TBS belongs to the studio that owns the film, so they could just play it for free. <laughs> Give everyone the day off. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Uh, that covers just about everything I wanted to talk about. Is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, not really at this point. I feel like we didn't talk about the um, other people that came in, the informants, which I think are pretty interesting that they popped They sort of like each coordinate with someone and they sort of like, how did, sometimes I, I think the reasons that they're there are a little paper thin. Like the cop is supposed to be coming. Like there's this timeline in the movie where like Wadsworth has called the cops, but then when the cop actually gets there, it's like ahead of time. And apparently he like, he's a Washington DC cop. What the heck is he doing in New England? And the reason is, is because somebody's like Wadsworth has called him to be there. The same thing with, like, the stranded motorist. Like, his car broke down in front of the mansion, but if we're led to believe that Wadsworth called them all, then why he's broken down, but he's there for a reason. That sort of makes me think of uh, Raymond Chandler's famous essay, uh, The Simple Art of Murder. For most of the essay, he takes a, a murder mystery novel written by A.A. Mill and just rips it to shreds. Yeah. It is really hard to write one of these whodunits without some aspect of contrivance going on. Yeah, and, and some and some of it is, so like, Yvette makes sense because she's the maid. I mean, obviously they've hired her for the weekend or whatever. The cook is supposedly in this house, like the chef for this, but technically she's Mrs. Peacock's former chef. So I know like a vet is working for the madam that's on the side of her mating. So who else pops in? Um, oh, the singing telegram girl. But you'd have to say that someone hired her to be a singing telegram late at night at a mansion in New England. <laughs> like, with rain pouring down. With rain pouring down. Come deliver our singing telegram message. Which, I mean. I mean, she, she looked like about 23. She probably needed the money. Well, yes, and I'm also, like, when you see how old the singing telegram girl is, you have to think, like, when was Professor Plum playing with her? <laughs> this film is set in 1954. Um, powerful men now take advantage of teenage girls and get away with it. Oh, so that's the other running joke. So is um, Professor Plum is uh, puts like the moves on every single girl in the in the movie, but then he also he like works for the World Health Organization, and like part of the joke is that like being in with all the murderers will like oh you know, I might go up in their estimation. Like, ah, it's not a good thing to think about I, the United Nations. 
every single male character in the film, except for Mr. Green, just checks out Yvette's rack, uh, except Klum, who does it like eight times. Yeah. Uh, well, it's there. There's a very... It's a very nice costume. Yeah, that is a very low-cut French maid outfit, which is, um, I mean, even by the standards of a French maid outfit, it's very low-cut. And, and yeah. very poofy in the bottom as well. Mm. <laughs> so, And she pulls it off really well. Like, you have to be the right kind of person to pull off that outfit. Oh, and her, and her terrible French accent. Just Jeff's kiss of cheesiness <laughs> every time she says something. Uh, including one of the puns where, like, Mrs. Peacock has to go to the bathroom, and she's like, wee wee, madame. And it's like, no, I just need to powder my nose. Oh, I was so happy when I finally, like, knew enough French to understand the rest of it. Like, she says bon decor at one point, which means, um, yeah, like, yes, okay. Or, well, it means, like, good okay when she's when they're asking her questions and stuff. I was like, oh, I understand this now. <laughs> uh, yeah, looping back to the contrivance, uh, I uh, also think of a writing manual I came across. I forget what it was called, but one of the more illuminating chapters was called Your Job is Harder Than God. Because in the real world, freakish coincidences and elaborate plods do, on occasion, happen. However, if someone stumbles across it in a novel, they're going to think it's really contrived. And once again, getting back to these locked room mystery whodunits, it, it's hard to pull it off. I, I don't envy anybody who writes mysteries. <laughs> Even in this comedy film that is just supposed to be this loopy, satirical, I mean, or at least parodic take on it, we're still be like, hey, wait a minute. I know, like, I was actually noticed a really stupid one this time. So the candlestick is on top of the um, lintel on the door after, like, a vet supposedly kills Mr. Body and drags him into the toilet. A vet isn't tall. I have no idea how she got that candlestick up on the mantel. She got that candlestick up on that door frame because it sets up a gag where yeah, it falls on Tim Curry's head and he makes a face before he passes oh out. Oh, God, it's great. It's like one of my favorite <laughs> scenes of the movie. I'm not shouting. All right, I am. I'm shouting, I'm shouting, I'm shouting. Bonk. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it gets her to top. I'm like, she's not tall enough to get out up there and then get back to the rest of the group in time. And she's also in heels. Well, so is everyone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, if that's it, uh, thank you for joining me. No problem. All right. And thank you for listening. I will see you all next time.